Merry Christmas, everyone. We are so glad that you're here joining us at Reach Church. If you're new, I want to especially welcome you. My name is Andrew, and I have the privilege of being the senior pastor here at Reach Church. I also want to take a minute and welcome all of you who are joining us online. Tonight, I have the privilege to talk to you about gifts. This is a, an actual gift that is for my daughter, Brienne. She's my youngest of six. It was one of the presents that had yet to make it under the tree. So my five-year-old is going to get to open this tomorrow. And I know this to be true of our family. It might be true of yours, along with countless other families the world over, that tonight and tomorrow and at several gatherings over the next few days, maybe even a couple of weeks, people are going to gather together. They're going to exchange gifts. They're going to rip into the wrapping paper and excitement looking to see what they, they got. I don't know about you, but my wife and I really do, on the by and large, put a lot of intentionality and effort into what we buy. We think about it days, weeks, months in advance. And there are times where that's not always the case. For example, it's sometimes necessary to get my kids a Nerf gun that shoots 18 darts per second so that I can adequately prepare them in the event of an apocalypse. There's not a lot of thought to that gift, and it's not necessarily sentimental. It's just very practical. Last year, we got them uh, bow and arrow darts, and all of my daughters went around the house as though they were Katniss Everdeen, and they were shooting each other, and it was a lot of chaos in our house. But for the most part, we listen to them as they tell us what they'd like to get, but we think about very practically what they need, as well as what we would like to gift them. I don't know about you, but for us, a lot of times there's more to the gift than just the gift. There's actually a story that goes along with the gift, how it was purchased, how it was given. And we look back over the course of our lives at something that was given or received, and we're reminded of the story of that gift. For me, I have one that is unlike any other in my life. In my pocket, I have a necklace. Now, you can't see the detail from where you're sitting, but I'll tell you a little bit about the history to this story and the gift. In 1997, I graduated Oregon City High School. This gift was a graduation present from my parents, my mom and dad. It's three-tone gold. It's got yellow gold, rose gold, and it's got white gold. On this necklace, the pendant is actually that of an anchor, a cross with Jesus on the crucifix, and a stern. The stern is unique because it actually is freestanding. It can move. You can take your fingernail and you can move the stern around. And I'll never forget the moment that my parents gave me this gift. It was unbelievably thoughtful. The story behind this carries some of the most significance of any gift that I've ever received in my life. Many of you know who I am, some of you don't, and you don't know my story. But in short, I was adopted at age 16, taken from the inner city streets of Portland where I was a high school dropout, living a life of depravity at every level. I was given the gift of life when my mom and dad and their four children at the time brought me into their home and offered me the gift of a family. And in two short years... I had to go from being a high school dropout who had been to four high schools in one year to graduating high school. Now, the, the irony of all that is because I had 
fallen so far behind going into my senior year, six months before graduation, my guidance counselor called me into the office to inform me that I was 12 credits behind, the equivalent of one full school year to that of the rest of my classmates. And she brought me in to inform me that I wasn't going to be able to graduate, that I was going to have to come back as a fifth year senior. It was in that moment that my dad looked at her and said, that's not an option. We're going to figure out how to make this happen. And, and they did. In every way, my dad and my mom helped me realize the goal of graduating on time. Because of all the effort and the work that I put into graduation and graduating, my parents wanted to give me a gift to serve as a reminder to tell a bigger story. Now, this anchor with the cross and the stern, it isn't about graduation, but it represents choices. And my parents told me this the day that they gave it to me, the day that I graduated. They said, Andy, we wanted to give you this so that every time you see it in the mirror, it serves as a constant reminder that Jesus Christ is the anchor of your life and he'll guide you everywhere that you go as long as you're obedient to his word, his will, and his way. And every time you look at this in the mirror, let it be a reminder of the story of your life and that God has a plan for you. For 24 years, I wore this necklace more than half of my life without taking it off with the exception of when I wrestled in college and when I coached wrestling after graduation. I wore it every year for, for 24 years. And you say, well, you, you speak about it in the past tense that you used to wear it. Why don't you wear it anymore? Because I had the privilege last year of sitting across my 16-year-old son on his birthday and telling him the story of my life and the gift of God in my life and speaking into his life. And in that moment, I was able to take this, this, this gift, this reminder of the story of God in my life off of my neck and place it on his neck and speak the same words of truth and love and wisdom as a gift to him to say, Caden, every time you look in the mirror and you see this pendant, let it be a reminder that God is the anchor of your life and he guides you everywhere you go as long as you are obedient to his word, his will, and his way. And it is my hope, barring Jesus coming back for us, that my son will be able to find a, a godly bride and that they'll together be able to have a, a child of their own, maybe even a son that he'll be able to gift the same pendant to and share with him the gift of life to say that Jesus is the anchor of your life and he guides you everywhere you go. And tonight, that's what I want to talk about. In our short few minutes together, I want to talk about the greatest gift the world will ever know and the story behind God giving us this gift. If you brought your Bible with you tonight, fantastic. I would encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. If not, that's okay. I want to invite you to raise your hand and allow one of our ushers, my friends, to, to come and bring you a Bible. Just throw your hand up unapologetically. Say, hey, I'd like a Bible. The Bible is yours. It's a gift from us here at Reach Church to you. If you're looking for Matthew, you can find it at the front of your Bible in the table of contents or turn a little more than halfway in your Bible and it's the first book of the New Testament. We're gonna spend all of our time together tonight in Matthew chapter two, verses one through 11. And as you're looking for Matthew two, one through 11, let me start our time together in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to gather where we can create some space in our lives for a moment where we can sing songs of celebration and recognition that we can read your word that we can think through the significance of this season and all that we are called to do in terms of 
remembering, recognizing, and celebrating you and your gift. And I pray tonight that as we spend the next few minutes together in your word, that your word would come alive like never before in us. May we understand all the more the amazing gift that you give us. May we receive that gift. And I pray that it would change our lives for all eternity. And I pray now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be received as a gift to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to read Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. I say Matthew's account because there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Matthew's account, he gives some unique detail. We're going to read about the place where Jesus was born, the king at the time, and some men that came to worship. And I want to spend some time as we go through just thinking on a couple of things together. So why don't you follow along with me in your Bible. The words are also going to come up on the screen. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Now this is unique because there's actually more than one Bethlehem. There's Bethlehem North, which is in Galilee. Judea is significant because it's tied to a prophecy. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. We're going to circle back and talk about Herod in just a minute. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We, we saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. What's going on here is that you have these magi, these wise men. And historically, how many wise men are we told about? Three. We get that because these wise men bring with them three different gifts. But the truth of the context, if I were to establish some cultural framework for us, is it's likely there were hundreds of wise men in a caravan that came from the east, likely Persia. They came and they had some unique attributes about them. The word magi in the original language or wise men, it literally refers to astrologers, to magicians, and even some would identify them as wizards. What this means for us is that they used the cosmos, the stars, as a map. They used it geographically to give direction to where they were and where they needed to go. But they used it for more than that. They used the stars as a form of divination, of communicating with the spiritual world, the spiritual realm. They used it to inform them of future things to come. These wise men were skilled. They were experts in all that was in the skies. They had mapped out all of the stars and knew in fine, intricate detail where everything was laid out and mapped out. They were experts. They knew that there was something unique that was coming in a future age that would appear in the stars, in the heavenly realms. They knew this because in the Old Testament book of Numbers 24, verse 17, there's a prophecy given by a man named Balaam who talks about a star rising like a scepter that would guide people, speaking specifically about Israel and what would come. We're going to learn even more prophecy from Micah 5, 2 in just a minute about this place in Bethlehem. But here's what's important to know. 
Just like all of the children gathered around your tree tonight and tomorrow and in the days to come, they're going to wait with great anticipation, probably most not with a lot of patience, but with anticipation and excitement for what's to come. These astrologers, these magi, were looking often in the stars at night, studying them, looking on with great anticipation for this promise that was to come. And now, before their very eyes, something was different. Something was unlike it had ever been before. Something was unique, and it not only caught their attention, but it it would drive them to leave their land. They would travel at minimum 40 days, but likely much more given inclement weather or anything that would get in their way that would slow them down. And collectively, they would show up before the king in Jerusalem at that time. Now, let's talk about Herod for a moment. I said I would circle back and we would revisit Herod. As we read just a moment ago, it says that Herod was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, you'd have to ask yourself, why would a king be concerned about some wise men showing up from a community, a country that that isn't theirs? Well, I'm glad you asked. Herod was not of Jewish descent. Herod did not come from the line of David. Herod was a Gentile. He was one who had risen through the political ranks and using his political prowess, he lobbied the ruling body, the authorities, the governors in Rome, and they appointed him king over Jerusalem. Herod was a megalomaniac. In other words, he was always not only concerned, but consumed with his power, with his position, with what people thought of him. And he always had it in the back of his mind that there was somebody else gunning for his spot on the throne. He would think that way because if he himself, a non-Jew, was able to take the seat of a king, then others too could look to overthrow the throne, to circumvent the process and to usurp him and, and take their own place in royalty. It's actually recorded in history that at the time of Jesus' birth, Herod had already killed one of his wives and two of his sons. You, you heard me right. He had killed his own family members because he was so consumed with the idea that somebody would would overthrow him, would take power and position away from him. So when all of these wise men show up in this caravan and you say, well, how do you know that it was all this, this mass amount of numbers? Well, well, I don't because I wasn't there. But men with degrees and letters after their name on their business cards much more than I have that are historians and theologians that are brilliant minds have studied this exhaustively. And I guess I would ask the question, a great king in Jerusalem who is known as a megalomaniac and a dangerous king, do you think he would be afraid of three men? Probably not. But you would have his attention if you showed up with hundreds of men and and, and a caravan of people. And he asked this question, they asked this question, where is the one born king of the, the Jews? And it says all Jerusalem was concerned with him. Why was that? Because Jerusalem at this time had what they had and were where they were because of King Herod. 
He was a, a crazy maniac, but he was a talented architect and he employed a lot of people. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem and they did a lot of other things. And they were safe as long as Herod was safe. But if Herod was in turmoil or trouble, it meant that their lives too would be in turmoil and trouble. So they were concerned as well. Now let's keep going in verse 4. Herod called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law. And he asked, where's the Messiah? That word Messiah literally means anointed one or promised one. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Now, why would he ask the leading priests and the teachers of religious law? Well, the teachers of religious law are also known as scribes. They were experts in the Old Testament. They were called upon to interpret the law and the Old Testament. This doesn't mean that Herod believed it. It doesn't mean that Herod held to the Old Testament rule in his own life. But he recognized that there was something unique going on here. So he called the men who were skilled in prophecy, who knew what was foretold generations and generations before. And he asked them, hey guys, listen, come here. We need to talk. So these guys are outside and they're talking about the king of the Jews and born and back. What, is, what does the law say about this? What does the Bible say about this? And what I love is they are going to use prophecy, not their own ideologies, not their own understandings, not their own facts and data, but they are going to, to use scripture from Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, to substantiate the truth of this prophecy. Look at this. In verse 5, it tells us, In Bethlehem and Judea, these scribes said, For this is what the prophet wrote, Micah 5, 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will be like the shepherd for my people, Israel. Look what Herod does. Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. We know without having read the rest of the story that Herod has no intention of worshiping this newborn king of the Jews born in Bethlehem. The word worship, worthyship, literally means to bow down to in adoration or respect. No, Herod was scheming. Herod was looking for every advantage he could possibly get to put an end to anyone that would pose a threat to his rule and reign. In scheming, he called these wise men into his inner courts like they were friends of his. Like they had a vested interest in his kingdom. And he says, hey guys, I admire what you're doing. When you get there, when you find out where this, this boy is, come back, tell me, because I, I want to go worship him as well. I want you to hold on to the word worship. It's interesting because these magi go to worship, but not for the reasons you think. Look at verse 9. After this, after this interview, the wise men went, with their, went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. I would encourage you to, to circle or highlight the word child. It's significant to this story, because a lot of times we will actually confuse stories, or we will parse things out of different stories, or we'll combine things. How many of us, when we think about the wise men visiting Jesus, we, we see Jesus as a baby in swaddling clothes in a manger, and that the wise men will show up at the stable just outside of the city 
with the gold and frankincense and myrrh in these treasure chests? What that is, is two different accounts of the same thing, but two years apart. It is true, Jesus was born in a manger, not just outside the city. It was literally in the side of a cave and was with a lot of other barn animals. And there's some amazing prophecy we don't have to get in, time to get into tonight. I wish I could about why Jesus was born, where he was, why he was wrapped, the way he was, even down to the, the finest detail of why he was placed in a, a manger. It has to do with, with what the shepherds would do with the atonement lamb, what they would do for the Passover lamb and foreshadowing of what Jesus would be for, for you and for me. Now, the, the individuals that would go find Jesus in the manger were the shepherds from the field. The Magi actually come what some scholars actually estimate to be nearly two years later. Why do you say two years later? What's significant about that? Notice I, I asked you to highlight or circle the word child. In the original language, it gives us some framework for our basis. It doesn't say infant. It doesn't say newborn. It lets us know that this is a child. Number two, they find Mary Joseph and the baby Jesus or the child Jesus at a home in Bethlehem. That means that they have had to have time to be established, to get established in this community. So there's a lot of little things like that that you pick up on and it starts to create a, a new image for us to see things clearly. Those are just some details, but they, let us, they lead us to another more important detail. And it says here, as the star guides them and stops in place, hanging over where Jesus is at and the, the place where the child was. Verse 10, it says, whenever they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Have you ever longed for something with so much great anticipation that when the moment finally came, you were overwhelmed with excitement? For many of us, sometimes it's a, it's a feeling of relief. It's as much an intrinsic feeling of joy as relief. I'll give you a subtle example from my own life. My wedding day. I was ecstatic to get married and I was also relieved it was over. Nobody else? I've got five daughters. I'm excited for them to get married. I just have no idea how we're going to pay for it. I will be excited for them, but I will also be glad when it's complete, when it's finished. Tomorrow, your trees will be covered with children, those of you who are blessed and lucky enough to have young children or, or, or grandchildren that age. And there's going to be a, a joy, a, an excitement that comes with tearing through the paper and exposing the gifts and getting to, to use them and play with them and explore them. It's a, it's a joy complete. These magi had invested their lives, had literally bet the barn, the farm, and all the animals. In other words, they gave up everything to chase after this unique star and this foretelling called prophecy that would lead them to this place. Everything that they had ever mapped out, it's finally here. All the stars and the planets intricately placed and aligned this one light has now brought them to this place and it is sheer joy for them. And so what do they do on the heels of this great anticipation now complete? Look at verse 11. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they, gave, they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You find it odd that they didn't come with rattles and with tickle me almost? 
with pacifiers and trikes? I dare you to give your children tomorrow under the age of five gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And look at their faces. So what gives? Why would these wise men do something that didn't seem too wise? Why would they come and bring these three gifts? I'm so glad you asked tonight. Let's talk about, let's talk about the significance of these three gifts just for a moment and what they represent. Gold, sign of royalty, assigned to a king. I want you to think about if you know the story of Esther at all. The beginning of the book of Esther is a story about a king named Xerxes. He has over 127 provinces under his reign. He reigns from India to Asia, all over Persia. What's significant about that? This king is so powerful, wealthy, and opulent that he puts on display for everyone his success through gold, gold goblets and gold laced, everything gold. The more gold, the greater the evidence of their royalty. So think about that. These three wise men, more than that, but at least three that come in with these gifts, give a gift of royalty to acknowledge that this is a king. The second gift Frankincense. What is it? Did you know that frankincense throughout the Bible, in Greco-Roman culture at that time, monotheistic, which means one, polytheistic, which means multiple, that in every one of the religions, they all relied on frankincense to set apart their chief deity. They brought a gift suggesting that this was God. They brought frankincense to say that this is a chief deity, that this is a God, not just a God, but the God. So here we've got gold as royalty. We've got frankincense now as God. The third gift, myrrh. This is where it gets interesting. Talk about a foreshadowing. Myrrh was always used in a burial procession where they would lay a human body to rest and embalm it, anoint it with myrrh. Three gifts, three distinct gifts, one of opulence and royalty, one of recognition of deity, and one of a foreshadowing of ultimate sacrifice. You say, Pastor, why is that important tonight? You're talking about gifts and you're talking about a story. Remember when I told you that this pendant that I wore for so long that now my son wears is much more than just a, a necklace and a pendant, but that there's a story behind this gift? My parents got me this as a, as a recognition of perseverance. And as a symbol of trusting Jesus with my life in all things. The story is a story of love and determination. And the gift is an example to be remembered. The reason that I believe 
with all of my being that Jesus receives gold, frankincense, and myrrh is because it is a gift from God to help us understand his love for us. He gives us his his one and only begotten son born of a virgin Mary in the form of Jesus here incarnate in flesh. The ultimate gift of love, peace, shalom, entire, complete in a world of chaos and in a world of madness. Now before their very eyes is this opulent gift, not of wealth and success according to the world standards, but this opulent gift a huge display of love and a love of humanity. A love that says I love you so much that I give my one and only son and that any of you that receive my gift, you will experience life and life to the fullest. That is the story of Christmas. That is the greatest story ever told. And it begins with a gift. Three of them. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I believe with all my heart that that is God's way of saying, remember. As you think about these things, remember that the gift that I give you is a gift out of love. I love you so much that I give you my my own son. Tomorrow, my daughter Brienne is going to open this present. I would tell you what it is, but she's in the service. She's going to rip through the wrapping paper, and we're not going to be able to get there fast enough. Yeah, 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 Dad. Read. Yeah, good. Love the Christmas story. Yep, nope, awesome. Understand why we're doing this. Yep, let's pray. This is amazing. All right, let's start doling out the gifts. Dad, get out of the way. And we're going to pile the presents up, and we're going to start youngest to oldest. To teach my children perseverance. <laughs> Brienne's going to rip into this present. And she's going to see for herself what's behind the paper. But it doesn't stop there. She's going to be given this gift. But it's up to her what she does with the gift. She's going to get to receive this gift tomorrow. Take it on as her own. Explore this gift. Learn to appreciate this gift. Put it to use, this gift. And there's going to be pictures that her mother's going to take at nauseum that will remind them from year to year and for generations of all these gifts. My daughter's going to get to receive this gift and make it her own. She didn't do anything to deserve this. I mean, literally, she's five years old. What could she do? We spend more time cleaning up after her than we do our dogs. The other day, I have a friend in our church that brought me the holy grail of Christmas for lactose intolerant people. Almond eggnog. She drove to Iowa a recluse store just to find it. And you know what my five-year-old did? Eggnog. And then she forgot to put the lid all the way back on. I grabbed it in excitement, went to just shake it one time, lid popped off, eggnog everywhere. And I said, oh yeah, that's amazing, as I'm licking it off my arm. 
She didn't do anything to deserve these gifts. But we choose to give them to her anyway because we love her and we, we want her to know how much we love her and value her and she gets to receive these. Guys, God loves you radically, selflessly, so much that he gives us a gift that keeps on giving for all eternity. These bodies, this flesh, these clothes that my wife made me put on tonight, temporal. The Bible describes them as a mist, a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow, just like that. But when we receive the gift, most important thing you're going to hear me say tonight, when we receive the gift that God gives us in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us that much, we have the hope of eternity. So here's my encouragement to you tonight. Tonight, tomorrow, and for the days to come, you're gonna start unwrapping these presents. And I pray that every time you do, every time you unwrap one of these gifts, you remember the gift that God has given you and me. And you hold on to the fact that you are dearly loved, radically loved. I hope and pray that every one of you receives this gift that God gives us in the form of his son, Jesus. I want to invite you to stand with me. The band's going to come out and we're going to sing in just a minute. We're going to sing a traditional Christmas carol. My friend, uh, my friend Rachel's going to lead us in silent night along with the band. We're going to get to reflect. But before she sings, I want to ask you to think about something. Have you received the gift that God has given you? If not, man, I, I, I just encourage you, before you leave tonight, take it in. It doesn't make sense. We aren't worthy of it. That's just how much he loves us. If you want to learn more about receiving this gift of love that God gives us, if you want to know what it means to surrender your life to Jesus and worship him, I'm going to be outside these double doors in our lobby with some of my friends, our staff members, and our elders. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to pray with you. And I'd love to share with you why I am full of joy and excitement this Christmas. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these few moments that we've had tonight together. I thank you for the son that you've given us. I thank you for the reminder of the gift of love. How selflessly, how radically, and how intentionally you love us and the story behind your love. And I pray tonight that each one of us would take the time to sit and to reflect and to appreciate your love in our lives. And if there's anyone tonight that is yet to surrender their life to you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would not leave here tonight without, without receiving you as the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.